Oh, thank you so much, John. And for those of you who are just joining us, the Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. I'm so grateful and so thankful for this moment that we're coming together for this special program and our guests. It is a very timely premiere of this special documentary. We're doing things just a little bit differently tonight. First, we'll start with Ramona, and then Maria will be joining us in the second half. But please do send in your questions, your comments, uh, especially if you're on with us live, and we'll get them to our guests. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to you our our guests. And remember, Ramona will be with us in the first half, uh, but I want to read a little bit about uh, who they are. Maria Ressa is a journalist in Asia for nearly 35 years. Uh, She's also the co-founder of Rappler, the top digital-only news site that is leading the fight for press freedom in the Philippines. As Rappler's executive editor and CEO, Maria has endured constant political harassment and arrests by the Duterte government, forced to post bail eight times to stay free. Rappler's battle for truth and democracy is the subject of tonight's discussion, the 2020 Sundance Film Festival documentary, A Thousand Cuts. For her courage and work on disinformation and fake news, Maria was named Time Magazine's 2018 Person of the Year and was among its 100 most influential people of 2019. She also has been named one of Time's most influential women of the century. Ramona Diaz, who is the director, writer, co-editor, producer of the 2020 Sundance film, A Thousand Cuts, is an award-winning Asian-American filmmaker whose films have screened at top-tier film festivals such as Sundance, Tribeca, IDFA, and many others. All of Ramona's feature-length films, Imelda, The Learning, Don't Stop Believing, Every Man's Journey, and her latest film, or uh, Motherland, I should say that her latest film is tonight's discussion, um, have all been broadcast on PBS. Motherland won an award at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival and had its international premiere at the 67th Berlin International Film Festival. It was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Documentary, a Peabody Award, and a Gayward Urian Award for the Filipino Film Critics. And so let's begin our program um, and our discussion about A Thousand Cuts. Mr. President, is it important that people be afraid of you? Fear. Hello and welcome. I'm Maria Ressa. Maria Ressa carries the torch of press freedom in a country held in thrall by a populist president. It started with the drug war. Do not do drugs because I will kill you. President Duterte began his administration with the drug list. This is the drug industry of the Philippines. He showed everyone a list. People on that list started dying. I'm telling the Filipino people it's gonna be bloody. We demanded the government be held accountable. Duterte was annoyed by our reporting. You are a fake news outlet. They will be allowed to criticize us, but you go to jail for your crime. We started getting an attack on social media. The government created disinformation networks so people have no idea what the truth is. I was getting an average of 90 hate messages per hour. We don't even know whether we can trust the police to protect us. Just because you're a journalist, you're exempted from assassination. We didn't even realize how dangerous it is for you. Why are you crying? Because I'm scared for you. Maria Ressa has been arrested. The charges against Ressa were aimed at intimidating those who challenged Duterte's rule. So why should you care about what happens in the Philippines? They test the tactics of how to manipulate America in our country. If it works, they port it over to the rest of the world. Maria Ressa was one of four journalists named as Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Maria won't be afraid. I'm afraid for her. What we're seeing is death by a thousand cuts. Little cuts of Philippine democracy. We will not duck. We will not hide. We will hold the line. Ramona, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being here with us tonight and being here with us at the Commonwealth Club. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Really a pleasure to be here tonight. 
Yeah, this, it, I also should thank you. I mean, John and I were talking about this, but thank you for this very captivating, eye-opening, uh, you know, honest and riveting film and very timely. And while if you watch the trailer or if you're someone lucky like me, you're able to actually see the film, you might think that, you know, the whole documentary is based on Maria Ressa, so award-winning journalist, very courageous, and, and the uh, experiences of being attacked by an authoritarian type of government, uh, you know, leader. But in fact, uh, looking at a couple other interviews, that wasn't the case. It didn't start out, you know, a documentary about Maria Ressa. How did it actually transpire? What were the beginning stages? Um, and how did the film transpire? You know, um, when Duterte became president in 2016, right? Um, right after he became president, the drug war started. And then all the photographs from that drug war started, it started showing up on my feed. I started, you know, people started sending it to me and it was horrific. I couldn't really turn my gaze. And it was something that, you know, I'm a martial law baby. I grew up under martial law uh, in the Philippines. And there was something there that was very frightening. You know, it was just, a, you know, I, I don't know, my all my senses were like, oh my God, what is going on? So, but, but by the time I was finishing Motherland, my previous film, but so by the time I got to the Philippines to research my film, it was this sort of vague notion of making a film about the drug war. But by the time I got there late 2017, a lot of people were already doing that film. And a lot of films have since come out about the drug war, as you know, and I, I can't do breaking news. I, I'm not equipped to do that. I don't know how to do that. I'm a, I usually stay... I'm very immersive in my filmmaking. I just stay and stay and stay with the person I'm filming. And of course, so when I looked around in Manila, um, there was Maria Ressa, right? Uh, and Rappler. And already she had been, um, she was uh, questioning the drug war. But more than that, she was also talking about disinformation, right? And the weaponization of social media. So that was the extra layer that I found very, a, a more global story. So it's very specifically the Philippines because it still is about the drug war and Duterte and all these other characters. But there's this layer, it zooms out and becomes more global, um, which I was really, then it was this, oh my God, yes, that, that's a story I should be telling. But then it still was very much this sort of ensemble cast of people that I sort of felt like I was going to cover equally when I started out because there was Matoa, you know, the Smoka and all the other allies of the, of President Duterte, but as uh, this was 2018 and we started filming with Maria and then we, you know, sporadically filmed with her. And then I decided the midterm elections was, was going to be the backdrop of the film. And so I said, okay, principal photography starts in February. Well, in February, she got arrested, right? The first time she got arrested was February um, 13th, right? The day before uh, Valentine's. I remember because I arrived in the country the day before to start principal photography because the election ele campaigning just began. So um, so there was this parallel story, story of Maria constantly, well, twice arrested, detained, and harassed by the government and the midterm elections. You couldn't write that, right? You could, you, I couldn't write it, certainly. And it, as we started filming, it was obvious that she ha was becoming... Um, the center of the film, you know, the gravity shifts as you're filming, at least as I film, when I film, the center of gravity begins to shift and she becomes the center. And also because she gave us full access, right? I mean, I found myself in uh, the room where she was being detained that first night. And I'm like, okay, here I am. Cause I sort of fought my way to the front of the crowd. And I said, I'm a rappler. And she didn't, Right, you know, she didn't disabuse them of that. So I'm like, okay, I'm with Rappler now. So once you're there and fully embedded, it, it starts. And then you realize, okay, she's a story and more and more so she became the story and then we traveled with her. So that's how it started. And who knew that tw like a year later, 2020, it, it becomes more and more relevant as the days pass. In a way, unfortunate, but here we are, right? It's a really relevant film, but it's nothing that you I plan, certainly not. I'm interested in characters and what's happening in front of me. And what I hope is to decode what's happening in the Philippines, because although I make my films there, I live here in the U.S. and I produce my films here. So I try to decode what's happening there to a to an audience beyond the Philippines. Right. To a, I live here. So to a Western audience, I guess. 
besides following Maria, of course, you, as you mentioned, feature Mocha. And she's a very interesting, I don't want to say character, but a very interesting person in this. And, and you get some very intimate uh, uh, discussions with her where she's revealing her life and such. What were you thinking when you approached her to be a part of it? And did she end up, you know, A, was she easy to convince to, to be a part of it? And B, uh, what were you expecting to get from this person um, and her role? I've done other work in the past. So uh, uh, like uh, Mocha was familiar with my other work. Like I've right. done, um, as Michelle mentioned, I did a film about Imelda Marcos, the former first lady. That was my first film. I did a film about Arnel Pineda, who's like the front, um, the lead singer for the rock band Journey, right? So everyone from like first ladies to rock stars, to teachers, to mothers. And she was interested in telling her story. She, you know, no one is ever... No one is ever the anti-hero of their story, right? Everyone's a hero of their own story. And I wanted to know why she, how she saw herself. I'm, I'm truly, I'm not interested in bad guys as such. I'm interested in the story behind that. I wanted a more, I always want the nuance, right? A more nuanced narrative. And I wanted to see what her story was, why she thought that she was the hero in her story, in her narrative. And uh, did it take convince? No, because she liked my other work. She was familiar with it. She also understands that I have an audience beyond the Philippines. She was also running for Congress, so that's another thing, you know. She and she very much understands the power of story, the power of media, the power of the camera, um, and um, she's performative. I think we all are in a way, but you know. Um, so that's she said yes, you know. Um, and I, I actually went through like formal channels. I asked permission. I wrote her a letter and then she responded in, like a couple of days later, but it still took some kind of nudging, but eventually she was very, yeah, she was very open to it. Yeah, she, she was very open, um, which was a little bit surprising. That was one of the questions that came up for me was just how you were able to get some of the, the inside footage and speaking of allies the other ally that I also, uh, you know, was uh, intrigued to ask you and how you got some of the footage is from the retired police general, uh, who's now the senator of the Philippines, Ronaldo De La Rosa Arabato. And he, you know, he himself is a character, um, but it begins with, you know, he is very, very upfront and open and honest about the war on drugs and about, you know, these state-sponsored killings of individuals that they believe to be in, even in possession of drugs or drug trafficking. Uh, and, and, and I want to play a clip actually uh, from uh, Bato or, or Renato De La Rosa. Let's go to the clip. What made you decide to actually run for Senator? At the same time, young but other people also see it as the way of the president to put loyal lieutenants in the Senate. That's why supposedly he wants you there and also Bongo. In talagang loyal to, to the president to protect his interests, not just his uh, agenda of governance. Yes, Anybody would like to, to bring down the president? Uh, now, obviously, now this clip, you know, is uh, from a media interview. But just as you had mentioned, I mean, you know, they they understand the power of the media. They've got the power of social media. They're running for a, a position. You know, Moko San is running for Congress, um, and this retired police general is running for senator. How did you get so so close, or how were you able to capture this part of the the documentary you know i'm very transparent when i film they they did know i was f filming maria um they understood that maria and vice versa maria knew i was filming mocha and bato it, to me it's very important to be transparent and to be above ground and i think also our visibility uh, also protected us you know if we were more under the radar i wouldn't have felt as protected but i felt visibility was our protection and i think because you know the way I film, I just stick around. <laughs> I'm not, um, I just stick around until they talk to me and they, 
they show me things that they feel I I want to see, you know, because in there, in but with Bato, you know, when he, there's a scene in front of prisoners and he basically threatens them, you better stop drugs or I have a way of stopping you. That's his thing. He's like he's Bato. He will threaten. It's also in um. You have to understand. It's an atmosphere of um where President Duterte talks about killing every day. It's his rhetoric. The the president's rhetoric is full of violence. You know, it's a it's a, it's a language of violence and killing and coming after you. And uh, I better not find you with drugs because we are going to kill you. Right. So. Out of that is Bato, who also feels, you know, I can I can speak that way, and I can show you what I'm going to do. He he likes he likes the image of him because that's his that's his thing. He's the tough guy. Bato means rock in the Philippines, so he's like the rock. He's Bato, and um, and he wanted to show me that. That's what he wanted to the p. That's how he wants the world to see him, right? I don't know um, if that explains it, but I just really just stay, stick around for a long time. Of course, the, the documentary and, and what we know about, about the work of Maria Reza is, you know, her being that uh, the, the journalist critically commenting on and reporting on and revealing what those in power are doing. And of course, this is all about the, the blowback she's gotten and continues to get and in, it intensifying. Did you, as a filmmaker covering this story, and of course you with a, a history of films set there, uh, did you experience any of this directed at you? Do you expect to experience any of this directed at you? Um, I Yes, I, I think the expectation has been there and it's starting, I think, with the film coming out. Um, and Maria was so funny because I said, oh my God, Maria, the trolls are after us. And she's like, that's okay. That means you're being effective. <laughs> She goes, it's okay. I think it started once a trailer hit, right? Because the trailer is so shareable. Um, and also we did release the film, the film in the Philippines. I don't know if you know that. We did right before her verdict on the 15th of June. That weekend, um, a front, you know, we decided we're going to release it for 24 hours for free in the Philippines to raise awareness um, for the verdict coming down that Monday. Um, and we expected, Frontline said, okay, an average view, maybe 20,000 for 24 hours for something that we'd never, there was no advance notice. We decided in a couple of days we're going to do it. There were like 233,000 full views in 24 hours. And it really hit the zeitgeist, right? And that's when we started getting hit as well, right? Um, we, we felt it. We felt it on our social media um, assets. Um, yeah, but so it began. I, I expect so. But also while we were filming her, the question of security, right? It's really not, I think we're very visible. And like I said, the president knew we were filming this. So it's not so much from the administration, right? But for from other violence. So that was, that was something that um, I also had a discussion with my crew, my local crew, especially because they were going to stay. We were, we leave, you know, me, my cinematographers and I leave and some, some sound people I brought in, but the local crew would stay and not one of them left. I said, you know, I would understand if you decided not to work on this project, I'll completely understand it. But none of them, all of them decided to stay and um, are named in the credits of the film and opted to be named. Right. So, and very proud of it. They would take, they now take screen grabs and then encircle the names in a t- at a time when there's an anti-terror bill, right? Law, it's law now in the Philippines, where it's the walls, uh, I mean, it, at a very, very scary time in the Philippines, they're still proud. And, I, you know, it was very touching when they decided to not abandon the project, to really feel like this is a story to tell. This is a correct story to tell. Let's begin our conversation about social media and its impact on democracy and uh, we'll go back to Mocha Usan. Uh, Usan, she has a, a blog, right? She talks about the blog that has uh, some pretty influential reach, I think millions and millions. Five million. Um, <laughs> five million, that's right. And, uh, you know, she's very open about being a performer, being a singer, didn't ever think that she'd be in politics. But if you get to know her throughout the film, she she slowly gets into to, to politics. She's actually appointed a couple governmental positions after President Duterte wins the election. But let's play a clip from the film. Oh 
I never planned to be in politics. When I supported then Mayor Duterte, it was it was voluntary. I was just a volunteer. To reach ng moka usang blog, 50 million people. Malaki yung nakontribute ng moka usang blog sa campaign kay Pangulong Duterte. I entered the government in for helping with the information dissemination of different government agencies for social media. For a dancer like me, for an entertainer like me to be appointed in Malacanang, that's really something big. Now, Mocha currently is being investigated by the NBI for sharing fake news. We'll get to that maybe when Maria joins us in the, the conversation. Uh, but would love to you know hear your thoughts, especially being an American and seeing how social media has impacted our, you know, our, our government, our democracy, our election. Um, and just kind of, you know, how, how eye-opening is it, was it for you as the filmmaker to experience the power of Mocha Usan? No, that's why I think I was very attracted to the story, right? Because it was really, uh, I mean, Maria was talking about it and Mocha is alleged queen of fake news, right? With her blog, there are 5 million followers. But it's also interesting that she ran, well, I, I won't give away the film, but, you know, maybe the 5 million followers didn't really translate into helping her win. But um, no, it was very interesting. I think what was most interesting for me, what was most eye-opening is that Maria does not talk about content, right? Because she always says content is a whack-a-mole game, Right. Um, she talks about networks of accounts we, and you show it, we, we show it in the film and how a few accounts really influence others. It's like this, it goes, and that's why it goes viral, right? It's like a virus. You can't stop it. And once news is out there, you can't really take it back, right? Because you're never going to affect the same people who are now, who now think that something is true, for example, right? So you never can take it down or you can never take it back. It'll never be the same. So that's, that to me was interesting. And once I saw the uh, the attacks on Maria were very, are still very um, gendered and violent, um, th that really also, I knew these things were happening, but to have it unpacked for me from someone who was really a victim of it and to hear Mocha say that those things were not really fake news, that they were things that were just, in the ether, right? She was just sharing what she found to be interesting, right? Is what she said, right? She wasn't amplifying. She was just sharing. And sometimes she shared the wrong things, just like, uh, you know, it's just, it, it was just a mistake, she said. It was very, to me, that was eye-opening to, to just have all, that whole conversation happening and being unpacked and understanding the power and how it's being weaponized, really. Interesting. You, you, of course, make documentaries. You're trying to reveal truths about people and countries and, and, and things. Um, and we live in this weird time where we have many countries where the presidents or titular leaders of the organized country, you know, Russia, Hungary, uh, the United yeah. States, the Philippines, where the actual top elected leader themselves, elected to whatever degree, is trying to define truth and, and lies to be whatever they like and whatever they don't like is, of course, a lie, it's fake news and such. Um, what? How does that change or does it, the environment and, and kind of the, the, the work you do in trying to get across truth and the story, the way you tell stories? I do the same thing, right? I just stay, I, I'm different from, uh, from I, I guess, uh, how, how most journalists work in that I stay for a long time. Right, I have the wherewithal to just get to whatever truth the character wants to put out there. Their truth, right? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm making, I'm making. There's a slight, there's a distinction between fact and truth. The truth is more um, 
fungible, right? There's your truth. There's my truth. There, that's all that. But there's facts, right? It's raining outside. It's raining outside. It's nighttime. It is nighttime. So those things I'm still responsible for. And I've always been and will always will be. But people's truths are, you know, uh, it depends, right? It, I, I mean, on what, I mean, Mocha's truth is like, she is, uh, whether people believe her or not, in her world, she is doing the right thing. She believes in the president. She believes in his rhetoric of law and order. She believes that he's going to go after corruption because of her own personal history, right? But all believes that the war on drugs is a good thing, right? That, oh my God, people on the streets are now telling him that they walk, they're safe now. Well, they're safe until they're not safe, right? Until it's their brother or husband or whomever is targeted. Uh, so there's that. But to him, he's doing a great service, right? That's their truth. Is it really true? Well, Let's see what Maria says, right? So then we zoom out and show what's happening and the numbers. Um, the numbers are horrific. Even the official numbers of the drug wars, like what, it's 4,000? That is horrific. And then human rights organizations peg it more at like 27,000. That's insane, right? But those are the... So the fact is, those are the numbers. But Bato's truth is that still it's still a good war, you know? But it's not a winnable war because the war, the, as you find out later, the the it, it hasn't helped any because the drug problem is still is still there or has gotten worse. You know, you find out that this during the debate at the end of the film. We have a, a couple minutes, I believe, before Maria joins us, and so I want to get this in there. We have one one last clip we want to play before we bring her in, and and it really talks to what you had just said, uh, Ramona, and. You know, the dangers of having um, someone who has some power over what is news, what is fake news, or who can control the narrative of what people understand is information versus disinformation. Let's play a clip of Pia and Duterte. What do you know about the bongos who intervened? Sir, as far as we're concerned, we've already addressed the issue of fairness on that article. Can you just answer, please, the question? Find the way that mat masabi ka ng totoo nag-intervene kami. I'll give it to you. And if you can find, I will ask Bong to resign tomorrow. Work on it tonight. Let me know tomorrow and I will fire him. If he did intervene, even for one word. Kasi kayo, tignan ninyo yung mga artikel ninyo. Maligaya kayo yung gawain nyo sa kapwa-tao ninyo yan araw-araw. Just because you have the power of uh, what? Press freedom. You are a Filipino who has allowed to abuse our country. And you are an active participant of that. Ayan ang mahirap. In the name of the Holy Grail of press freedom. Yung amo mo, anong kaso niya? Magago kayo. Yung, yung inyo mga reporter, they will be allowed to criticize us. But you go to jail for your crime. You'll go to jail for for reporting, for covering the news. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you, you said it earlier, you don't do breaking news, but as a filmmaker, a documentarian, that had to scare you as much as it scared me. No, it is scary. It is scary. And, you know, to watch... Um... The president, you know, the most powerful man in the country, sort of bully a young reporter, right? This young reporter, you're like, oh my God. And then the narrative, when it moves to social media, when it moves to the blog, is like Duterte shames Pierre Pierre is a young reporter. Like, it's a good thing. You don't shame a reporter. It is not a good thing to shame. But to them, that narrative is good because then he won the won an argument when it wasn't even an argument. It, it, it was scary, um, and uh, and I, that's why I love the young reporters at Rappler because they they're as brave, right? They take on the president. She questions him like, "This is this is wrong. We've already done this. That's not the question I'm asking you." I mean, it, that that comes from somewhere. That that bravery, 
you know, especially her and people who cover the drug war, the, you know, to see death, that, I mean, that must do something to you. It's pretty incredible. And that's a great segue uh, to introduce Maria into the conversation. Where does bravery come from? A person of a lot of courage and, and hope for, for many of us and one of the, you know, strongest voices fighting against this type of, in my opinion, corruption. Let's welcome Maria Ressa to the program. Maria, thank you so much for being with us. No, thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Um, John, I'm going to quit. I'm so nervous. I'll just go home now. You take on. No, but uh, arrested twice and bailed, you know, eight times and now have been found guilty of cyber libel. We'll get into what exactly that means, but let's play a quick clip from the film. Well, I would like to post bail. I've been served a warrant. The warrant that's been served A prominent Philippines journalist, Maria Ressa, has been arrested on fraud charges. Last month, Ms. Ressa, the executive editor of a news website, Rappler, was arrested over an alleged internet libel case. The prosecutors filed the latest charges against her while Reza was on a trip in the U.S. Media watchdogs say the charges against Ressa were aimed at intimidating those who challenged Duterte's rule and his war on drugs. At a different point in the film, uh, you mentioned that you're not scared of being arrested because it only makes you more resolute. You said, I, I see firsthand because I, I see firsthand how the law is bent until it is broken. What we're seeing is death by a thousand cuts of our democracy. So for many nations, many who believe in democracy and a free world, what are the consequences if we continue to damage press freedom in this way? And I guess that was me formally asking you, by the way, why should we care what happens to you? Uh, okay, so I think uh, three points, and uh, you know, I always think in threes because <laughs> I think the first is at no other time do you realize that information is power. This is the reason I became a journalist because uh, it's a sense of you know giving information to people, the facts mostly, <laughs> the facts, and then the second is. Uh, this time period has shown you how Silicon Valley has really the technology that we now consume information on has impacted our entire world. Uh, you are in California and those companies in California have now helped destroy democracy in many parts of the world uh, here in the Philippines as one of those places. Um, and that's important, you know, Ramona talked a little bit about what we have had to endure, but it isn't just in the Philippines. This death by a thousand cuts that's happening in every democracy around the world because facts are debatable. When facts become debatable, you cannot have democracy. You can't have truth. You can't have trust. And so that's the first problem that is global in nature and why you should care. I think the second one is that we are seeing this everywhere around the world, uh, and we are seeing networks that are linking together. Networks that used to be uh, targeting Venezuela are now targeting uh, Poland, strangely enough, are targeting Spain. The same networks, the networks of disinformation in the Philippines are connected to the alt-right that are connected to the Russian disinformation networks. So I guess part of it is there is this T tearing down facts leads to a different geopolitical power play. I, I sound way too academic, but I guess part of what I'm saying here is that once you elect a digital authoritarian, and, and we do because it's the, the tech platforms, the social media platforms have enabled the rise of populist authoritarian style leaders. Once they have the reins of power, they then cave in democracy from the inside. They use the tools of democracy uh, to stifle press freedom. We are so chilled. We're now in Siberia in the Philippines, but they're in the United States. Hello, what's happening to you guys, right? So um, a one-party state, you're still far from that, but we're certainly there. The same place where Hungary, 
uh, is Viktor Orban has used the virus to consolidate power as the Philippines has. The same place where you have like the Law and Justice Party in Poland or Vox in Spain, uh, not to mention Bolsonaro. And this is happening all around the world. And believe it or not, it starts with the choices that have been made by Silicon Valley companies. Power consolidates power. That's what we are trying to prevent now. We're trying to protect our democracy, but our dystopian present is actually your dystopian future present. It's your present now. How the heck are you going to have integrity of elections if you don't have integrity of facts? How can people make choices rationally for whom to vote for if they don't know the facts? That's a basic question, and and we don't really have an answer for it. Well, we're really lucky here in the United States to have a president who uh, is supportive of a doctor who talks about demon sex and things like that. <laughs> so we're in no position to lecture anyone. But in, in normal times, even a Republican administration in the United States, you would expect them to, if there were a Filipino journalist who was you know, being persecuted by the government, whether it was publicly or through back channels, you would expect that administration to say, hey, you know, you should think about this. Don't do this. We, you know, we, you know, we were your friends, but you know, we, there are, there are limits to things. Um, so let me put it bluntly. Do you think the Philippines as the future of us as well, but starting with the Philippines, do you think the Philippines has passed the point of no return regarding press freedom and possibly democracy? No, I don't think so. I think the battle is now. I think what will happen, we're just on the precipice you know, the largest broadcaster, ABS-CBN, a news group I headed for six years. That's why I came back to the Philippines. But uh, this broadcaster has been shut down in the middle of a lockdown. I think the we're, we're now the world's longest lockdown in dealing with the pandemic, but largely securities driven, right? We've just gone, just yesterday, we've gone into a more intensive lockdown. We're under home quarantine. So, uh, the shutdown of ABS-CBN happened at a time when Filipinos couldn't go out. Uh, and the last time that happened was in 1972 when Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law and it stayed shut for 14 years. So the question here is, we're right on the precipice. Um, there's an anti-terror law that essentially allows a small group of cabinet secretaries to designate someone like me a terrorist. And when they do that, you can be arrested without a warrant and jailed for up to 24 days. We are now challenging this as the Supreme Court, more than a dozen petitions at the Supreme Court. But you know, by next year, the Supreme Court, uh, President Duterte will have appointed 13 of 15 Supreme Court justices. So this is, um, we're right on the precipice. And this is part of the reason why we, what we do right now, we journalists, we Filipinos, this matters. Um, and who knows, right? Maybe democracy is not that important. But I would prefer to have that clearly defined. We shouldn't have a government playing in the grave, pretending to be a democracy, and yet, you know, taking away the rights that are guaranteed in our constitution. That's, this is where we are today, and this is part of the reason I think many Filipinos are asking Ramona, when will we be able to see the film in the Philippines, right? So I think like in the United States, we are all connected. The world has never been connected the way it is today. And part of the problem is that the social media platforms, which have now become behavioral modification systems, these social media platforms connect us all globally. So a lie told in San Francisco travels instantaneously to Manila and vice versa. Uh, it, it is unprecedented that you can have, just on Facebook's properties, 3.2 million, oh my gosh, yeah, 3.2 million, billion, <laughs> 3.2 billion people uh, of the 7.2 billion that, that are the world's population. It is unprecedented that now local is global and global is local. So you're not immune from it. And truly, it is the decisions that are made in America that has cascaded globally um, in terms of the quality of information we get, in terms of the facts we get, right? Because right now on social media, facts are actually relegated to the side. 
lies laced with anger and hate spread fastest and further than really boring facts. So this is a problem in our information ecosystem that really truly must be addressed before we can even begin the journalist's battle for checks and balances as the fourth estate. John, let's take take the time to open up uh, questions for our guests tonight. So if you've got a question for Ramona and Maria, we'll take them. I want to make sure that we have some time. Um, do we have a, a question or comment from the audience? Well, this isn't a question. This is a comment. Someone writes that journalists like Maria Ressa, who stand up for the truth at such personal risk, deserve something more than a purple heart. They are the true defenders of democracy. Um, it, it It's interesting to me that that going off what you were just talking about, Maria, um, you know, the internet and, and social media and all of these, the, both the companies and the gurus of it over the past few decades, they all, you know, the, the mantra was, oh, this is going to be something that undercuts the authoritarians. It's, you know, because no government will be able to establish, you know, a, a fantasy land world because the people will be able to, you know, talk to each other and share truth. And instead, of course, it's, you know, Russia and China, which have really learned how to manipulate this and weaponize it. Um, and what you were just saying about, uh, you know, the, the way, I mean, it, it reminds me of the old line of what is it, uh, you know, a lie can get around the world twice while, you know, the truth is still putting its shoes on. Um, do you see, I mean, this, this, this documentary, I think is, is one part of helping to raise awareness of this, but do you see the forces that could help either respond to this or be a countervailing uh, force to it, do you see them, if you will, getting their shoes on and getting ready and realizing this is more than just, oh, I'm going to tweet something else against them, but that there needs to be some sort of structural or policy uh, response to this kind of thing? Um, so before coron the coronavirus, before the pandemic happened, I always thought 2020 was going to be the year that big tech was held to account. Um, we can't even we we can't even get near the shoes. I mean, it's that far. It is exponential. And uh, sorry, let me get rid of this. Um, I, I think that the biggest problem right now is that uh, it, it plays to the worst of human nature. Uh, you talked a little bit earlier about hate and the kinds of things that what happens when you become a target of these disinformation networks you know three things happen the first is that the the first goal is to pound you to silence the second goal is to to create a fake bandwagon effect manufactured consensus and in my case it was you know journalist equals criminal and in four years you know the weaponization of social media plus the weaponization of the law kind of made that alternate reality real Right. Um, and then the third part is truly um, it's a consolidation of power for those with power. And I guess this is where I'm reading two books right now that are playing with my mind. And, you know, I want to share them with you. The first is uh, this is still coming out. Sina Naral from MIT wrote a book called The Hype Machine, and he lays out both behaviorally how the, the social media platforms, you know, it triggers uh, our dopamine, it triggers chemicals in our own bodies that keep us addicted to it and the way it is designed itself polarizes society. It divides us. It pushes us to the extreme. Um, the second book is Anne Applebaum's book. Um, she called it, it's the twilight of democracy, the seductive lure of authoritarianism. I just got the book, yes. You just got it, right? So so the, the, the point here is that anger and hate it takes kind of something very personal to all of us. Like if you are disappointed because you didn't get a job, somehow it allows you to then blame someone else for your own insecurities and shortcomings. And you join this movement and that then becomes a party, right? So it, it uses hate. Uh, in the film, one of our reporters, Patricia Evangelista, says that President Duterte promises revenge, to those who didn't have it. And, and I think that's what we're seeing happening around the world. It isn't just the monetization of hate. It isn't just hashtag stop hate for profit. It is truly the politicization of hate. And we've seen this before. We saw this in Nazi Germany. We saw this in Stalin. You know, it's, this is, let me calm down. 
three cups of coffee. It's oh, well, don't calm down. down, you know. Oh, don't calm down. Don't calm down. <laughs> uh, uh, it's you alarming. Know. <laughs> we do have some questions uh, from the audience, it, it, um, and and actually two of them, and I'll kind of merge them together, which is basically okay. So, what can those of us who are here in Silicon Valley? What can we do? What can we talk to the tech companies to do? What can I mean? The Commonwealth Club has these people both not literally just down the street from us, but also we do programs with them. What can we all do to move this beyond just a, a conversation? This is something we've been trying to do since 2016, because part of the reason Rappler and I came under attack was we challenged impunity on two fronts impunity of President Duterte's drug war and then the corruption that started happening. This is why our reporter, who you saw in that clip, get bullied by our president. That's why she was kicked out of the palace, because we did a, we exposed corruption of somebody very close to the president. Um, but the second impunity that we, we exposed was Facebook. Um, you know, think about it this way. In Myanmar, the UN has actually proven that genocide happened, enabled by Facebook. Facebook's own people did their own study, and they agreed with that UN study. The man who did this was somebody I knew in Indonesia, Marzuki the Rusman. He, his report was very damning, and yet there's been no accountability. There's been little change. And I worry because you are now going to elections with no very little changes, you know, taking down... So before everybody was focused on content and debating content like the, the tech platforms, like algorithms cared about individual content, they don't. The end goal of all of this, and let's go back to the goal of Russian disinformation, the end goal is to create a narrative and change the way people think, right? So it's like you're... you're you're setting a virus loose in a closed system, and that virus infects people. It's a narrative that then becomes a reality for a group of people that feeds on insecurity, violence, hate. We know online violence leads to real-world violence. So this is, that. I guess I'm just saying, how can you have integrity of elections without facts? How can a, an American company get away with genocide. I mean, let's be real, <laughs> you know, live in my world. <laughs> I, I want to ask this question. I mean, we, we talked a whole lot. There's so much going through my, my mind, it, even watching the, the documentary three times, but the, the film does now include, uh, you know, the, the outcome, the verdict, right, of, of the cy cyber libel case, which I had mentioned um, earlier. And so running to you just like, you know, <laughs> like a, a lost child and who, who needs their parent, uh, we're, we're asking you, I mean, what do you do? And it's funny because you asked in the film, what do you do when the president lies? Uh, Maria, what do we do when <laughs> the president lies? What do we do now? What do we do from here on out? And I'm asking you, as you're facing up to seven, eight years in prison and a, and a fine and still have to work through some other charges. Um, so that was also a really long way of asking, I, I mean, what do we do right now to also save Maria, save democracy, save journalists? So, no, no, thank you for the question, Michelle. And, you know, part of it is I've obsessed about this for four years. <laughs> when when I was first arrested and I like called, I actually tested Ramona because she had just gotten in and I was like, you know, I'm being arrested if you want to come join us. Um, it's, uh, uh, I think what we are seeing because of the, the technology. So technology is the enabler. It's like it threw gasoline into the fire of uh, normal people. So, so let me first... Um, I'll answer your question and then kind of pull it out bigger. The atomization of meaning has, has happened. And so what do we do? I think the first is Americans demand accountability from the American social media platforms that are enabling the destruction of democracy. Move fast break things doesn't work anymore when you're talking about 
huge groups of people, of societies, of democracies. And we have seen chief armies on social media roll back democracy all around the world. The first studies came out in 2017. And by 2019, Oxford Computational Propaganda Research Project puts the number of countries where this has happened is at over 72. So, so that's the first. I think the second one is understand that, um, that the battle is individual. When I say the atomization of meaning, it means that you now have also tremendous power. So aside from demanding accountability, which every every American has, you guys are far more empowered than we are because your institutions still work. Our institutions have collapsed. So you're, this, the first is social media. The second is uh, you. What are you, I ask this of Filipinos, what are you willing to sacrifice for the facts? What are you willing to sacrifice for the truth? Because this is now what the times demand of us. We journalists, we have to sacrifice a lot to do our jobs right now. So it's an individual one. And then I think the third one is to pull it out broader. Think about it like this, right? The world became very, very complex. And starting in 2014, before really technology came in, people all around the world were looking for, I'm going to say, it, we were nostalgic for a past where someone stronger, bigger can take care of all of these complex problems and just solve it. I saw it in India with the election of Modi. In, I covered it in Indonesia when uh, a governor, Joko Widodo, was running against the son-in-law of former President Suharto. Uh, this I knew very well because I covered the end of nearly 32 years of Suharto in Indonesia. And Prabowo, the, son, the son-in-law of Suharto, almost won. He ran again later on. But what you saw was that people like Americans, it's too complex. It's, they want it distilled and they want someone to take it off their shoulders. Well, here you go. It goes hand in hand. 2014 was also the year that Russia and the Ukraine created two different realities. And the world didn't really look at it, but it was a harbinger of things to come. So the question now is, once technology became the gasoline into the fire that has created this lure, that has amplified the lure of authoritarian, digital authoritarians, what do we do? I think the question, the answer there is, <clears throat> at least in the Philippines, we demand, we go back to the tools of democracy, we go back, like for me as a journalist, we keep doing our jobs because the worst thing that could happen is for all of the things you saw to stop us from doing our jobs because that's the end goal. This is kind of all over the place because it's huge, right? But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think, here's the silver lining. This time matters. Well, the pandemic is a once in a century event and it has a, uh, accelerated the demise of democracy in many parts of the world because government gets more power, gets more money. And, you know, what we see what happened in Hungary. Uh, we see what happened here in the Philippines. Our government essentially took that power and money and, and shamelessly um, used it to get more power. But here's the, the silver lining is this. A virus is not something you can demonize. You can't hate a virus and get anything done, right? Governments have to perform. And I guess this is, this is what we're seeing in the Philippines today. Our medical frontliners over the weekend just demanded different actions from government because it's their lives on the line. It's our lives on the line at a time when lies kill. Um, everyone has a stake. So, who knows where it's going to go, but, you know, Michelle and John, I hope that those first two steps are very easily doable. Please, you know, demand accountability, demand an end to impunity of American companies that are working globally. And then the second thing is we have to know that now is the time. If we don't use our rights, we're going to lose it. If you could, um, I mean, here in the United States, obviously, we're heading toward a presidential election. Uh, things at the moment do not look good for the incumbent president. He's been, his popularity ratings were never particularly high, but he always had that strong core. Even that now is starting to be rocked a bit by 
you know, the pandemic, the uh, economic collapse, the, uh, you know, the racial protests. Um, but President Duterte, tell us what, where's his, I mean, he's had like 70% higher ratings. I mean, a U.S. president doesn't get that unless they invade Iraq. I mean, is his support remaining solid? And uh, what do you predict now? What is it, two years until the next presidential election there? Um, you know, will there be Duterteism, you know, continuing after him? Or do you think, you know, I guess I'm asking you to prognosticate, but I mean, kind of what's what's the expectation of, of him? Or is there a worry that he will hold on to power and uh, he'll be, you know, Marcos too? President Duterte said this himself. He shut ABS-CBN down without declaring martial law. He didn't have to. The conditions of martial law are already here because of the pandemic. Uh, we have seen a shameless consolidation of power. Uh, and now we're talking about our a captured legislature that is essentially doing our president's bidding. He's extremely powerful. Uh, will we even have elections in two years when there is now talk that uh, our House of Representatives will open up constitutional change? Something that's very um, tricky in the Philippines, right? So uh, it's hard to say what will happen next. But to your to your question about popularity, it's very hard. Uh, right now, there has been no survey given that we are in our 20, 20th week of a lockdown and we've just gone intensified uh, the lockdown. We're in home quarantine again. You need a pass to go out into the streets. There are checkpoints at each part of the streets, right? So um, I think we don't know, but do not underestimate the behavioral modification systems we call social media. Because part of the reason that this um, President Duterte was elected with about 39% of the vote in a field of five candidates, we don't have runoff elections, unlike, say, Indonesia. Um, and it was just majority, right? So he had 39%. He didn't have an overwhelming majority, but he had enough to win. And then you had a disinformation network, a propaganda machine we exposed that created manufactured consensus that in the last statistical survey had his ratings up before the lockdown in March at about 80%, right? That's huge. But that is also because the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, Chris Wiley, said we were the Petri dish. Uh, the Cambridge Analytica president, Alexander Nix, was here photographed with President Duterte's campaign team. Um, you know, he they deny anything to do with it, but Chris Wiley, the whistleblower, and Brittany Kaiser, the second whistleblower, they, Chris Wiley said that the Philippines was where they tested tactics of mass manipulation. I think you saw this in the trailer. And then if it worked, they ported it over. That's a direct quote, ported it to the U.S. Guys, you were the target. We were just the guinea pigs. So part of the reason, though, it is so effective in our country is because 100% of Filipinos on the Internet are on Facebook. Facebook is our Internet. And I think one of the things I have learned is how easy it is to manipulate people. And when people are shameless about it, it's, a, it's propaganda and, and it's at exponential speed and rate, then it's emergent behavior at a social scale. This has never happened before. This is all new. As a researcher, it's fascinating. I just hate that it's me, right? On the, you know, the, the risks are very high, <laughs> but it's, it's happening all around the world. So even, don't underestimate its impact on the U.S. presidential elections is what I'm saying. Uh, yes, President Trump's ratings could be down now, but we're seeing it scale up right now, everywhere. So um, be vigilant. Maria, thank you so much for not succumbing to their relentless attacks on you. Um, I, I just can't, I don't have the right words to explain, you know, the gratitude that so many of us have for, for you and your work. And then of course, Ramona for the film. So speaking of the film, it's coming out soon, um, opens nationwide here in the United States uh, on the 7th to virtual cinemas tell us you know what what does that mean virtual cinema is um um actually being able to watch the film in your own home right so what you do is you go to the film's website a thousand cuts dot film and 
on the website, you're going to see a list of theaters that are participating in the release. So you choose the theater of your choice. Uh, um, they're, all, they're mostly art houses. So choose the art house that you want to support because they need a lot of support right now, right? So you choose one and then you can buy a ticket. And I think you have like 24 hours to view the film or maybe that, more than that. But you know, like 24, 48 hours to view the film. So basically you're buying a ticket from them, but you can watch it at home. That's virtual cinema. Well, everyone, please, please watch the film. You have to, you need to. Our life, our democracy, our freedom depends on it. I want to thank Ramona Diaz for the film, A Thousand Cuts, and also Maria Ressa for telling your story, for having the courage, for being you, for, for being a hero, um, you know, as, as an audience member had said, and our, our thoughts are with you and the strength and support. We're all behind you. I'm going to leave John with the last few seconds to end our program. Well, I, of course, would echo Michelle's thanks to both of you and uh, um, also, of course, recommend the film. I have also watched it. Um, I will say folks can find more of our programs at CommonwealthClub.org, but also go online and look up uh, Ramona Diaz and Rappler, Rappler.com on Twitter. I see it and follow them. And I think, you know, informing yourself from as many sources as possible, reliable sources as possible is going to help us all get through this. So thank you, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another program from the Commonwealth Club of California. We will be seeing you again online in the future.